Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, and welcome along to episode 83 of the Howie Games Part A. Hope you're all having a wonderful, wonderful day. And this week, yes, one of the most frequently requested guests we get from you good people out there. Everybody seems to love him. What's not to love? Mr. Cricket himself, Mike Hussey. Here we go. Tremlett to Hussey. He pulls. Does he find the gap? He does. There it is. A hometown hundred. And what an important one for Australia. Mike had an absolutely incredible cricket career, but by gee, he had to wait a long, long time to get a crack at it. By the time he made his test debut, Huss had been playing first-class cricket for 10 years with over 15,000 first-class runs, 15,000. The underlying theme of this chat is what drove Mike to achieve such wonderful success. The answer may well surprise you, as Huss was driven, in many respects, by self-doubt. The way he used what most would see as a huge negative and turned it into a massive positive, it's a pretty unique approach. Certainly worked for him. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. I've been very lucky over the last couple of years getting to know Mike working with him at Fox Cricket, and he's one of the world's great blokes. He truly is. He's a funny fella, a very dedicated family man. He's always looking to improve, loved by everyone in the cricketing world. You see him the morning of a test match. Players from both sides out on the ground want to come up and have a chat with us. And he loves nothing more than after 10 hours at a test match talking cricket all day than sitting with you on the way back to the hotel and talking about even more cricket. He absolutely loves it. Enjoy the story of Michael Edward Colleen Hussey. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Mike Hussey. I'm excited about this. Welcome to the How We Games. G'day, Howie. Why, why are you excited? Well, because we've talked about doing this for a while and you've got a fantastic story to tell and I look forward to having a chat with you about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, mate. should be fun. But you will view it as not a fantastic story because that's the person you are. Well, I just think it's a... It's nothing flash, nothing special. It's just a... I'm just a normal normal bloke, just like anyone else out there. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's all that extraordinary at all, but, uh, but no... Been a, a good journey along the way. Can I just, um, which I never do, but I just want to relate a story to the audience, just to so people like understand who you are. We were at um, uh, someone we worked with at Fox Cricket. They put on a function not long ago, um, and there was a couple of AFL footballers there. Don't need to name any names, but you were saying to me, oh, I'd, "I'd love to meet these blokes, but I just can't go up and say hello." Um, do you know them? And I was like, yeah, yeah, so I know. Well, you know, I work on the footy. Come on, come. And he said, okay, I'll come over with you. And I was, and these two blokes, you two young blokes from the Western Bulldogs, their faces lit up when you went and said g'day. But you are such a <laughs> modest man. You didn't want to just bowl up. No, well, I, I admire those guys. You know, they're they're amazing athletes. And you know, you watch them on TV and you know, live when you go to the games, and you think, wow, how how good. How good are they? And so, yeah, you, you know, I didn't want to just barrel over there and, and they probably wish I didn't by the end of the night because I think I chewed their ear off the whole <laughs> you did, night. <laughs> you did put a pretty good tag on them. <laughs> yeah. But don't you 
Like, I saw the look on their faces and they're like, oh, it's Mike Hussey. <laughs> you don't see that. <laughs> no, nah, I, I didn't see that. I, I don't mean I don't see that. And, and it's funny, you know, because sometimes my wife or my daughter or someone like that will say something saying, oh, that guy's staring at you over there. And I'm like, oh, right, really? <laughs> and I don't know. I, I don't, as, as I said, I don't see myself as anything special. I just see myself as another bloke, uh, another person, lucky enough to be able to play cricket at a good level or at, at the highest level, um, have some success along the way. But I honestly just see myself as just a normal, everyday guy. I, I shouldn't be put on this pedestal anywhere else, yeah. We're at Optus here in Perth. We're about to do a big bash game. So two years into your Fox Cricket television career, <laughs> how do you find it? How do you find working on television? I'm really enjoying it, actually. Um, I love that I don't have that sick feeling in my stomach before every game like I used to get as a player. So I love that I can smile as I come to the ground and, and look forward to the cricket. Got the best seats in the house. Got a great team to work with. Uh, and plus, uh, what I'm really enjoying as well is getting challenged. As in, I know when I was playing, you want to get better and better and better all the time. So you're working towards that. And what I'm really enjoying, particularly in this last couple of years, is being challenged to try and get better at this broadcasting gig, um, particularly going into the lab and, and you know analysing different things uh, and, and trying to present that in a in a better way um, is really exciting as well. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm really enjoying the the challenge of it, but I'm also loving the the cricket and the camaraderie that we get you know when I was playing cricket as well. When you look at, I know you looked at cricketers and you looked at them and thought I'd love to be able to do something like that. When you look at the world of broadcasting, you know, you work with some amazing people, Shane and Gilly and Michael Vaughan and Isha and then the people you work with overseas when you go and do the IPL. Who do you look at and think that that's sort of where I'd like to get to? Oh, I don't I don't try and look at anyone in particular. Mm. I'd try and pick bits and pieces from everyone um, and, 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 and try and maybe then uh, add them to my game because um, I made that mistake as a cricketer. Uh, to try and bat like Ricky Ponting or Matthew Hayden uh, in particular, mm. whereas they're, they're their own people. I, as soon as I started trying to bat like them and not bat like me, then that's when I got myself into trouble and didn't play very well at all. So I guess that's part of the journey for broadcasting is to figure out, well, one, what my role is in the team and how I play my best game and then um, to stick to that through thick and thin and then obviously try and improve my way as well uh, along the way. So, yeah, I, I definitely watch everyone and I admire everyone for, but they've all got different roles in the team as well. So, do you critique yourself? Do you get home at night and think yes, no? Yep, definitely. Uh, not not just at night. I think probably after every little performance, mm. every stint, every time in the lab. Um, yeah, that could have done. I could have done that better, or or next time, you know. And I'm probably my my own harshest critic as well. Uh, so um, yeah, definitely. Much like when I was playing. <laughs> Which we'll get to when you're playing. Frequent listeners to the show know I've got a couple of kids, Huss, that normally ask questions at the end of the show. Um, I was with them this morning in Melbourne before I jumped on the plane to come here um, and they're all over you because they like your work. <laughs> well, I'm a big cricket. fan of the show too, Howie. I've listened to a lot of the episodes. Have you? Yep, yeah, and um, I've heard a lot of the questions from, uh, what is it, the Big Penguin and the Pickle? Yeah. So, Who's appealed to you? Who have you listened to that's appealed to uh, you? I really enjoyed the um, Jason McCartney uh, episode. That was amazing. In fact, I got goosebumps listening to it and I actually had to fight back the tears. Right. It was an unbelievable story but, um, yeah, even just thinking about it now sort of sends a shiver down the spine. Uh, so I really enjoyed that one. I enjoyed Nathan Buckley. Um, uh, it, the Ingalls family was fantastic. All of them have been great. Good on yeah, you, Huss. Yeah, it's been good. I'm glad you're listening. Well, you know the kids then. You know the pickle and the big penguin. <laughs> uh, I start with the big penguin for you and we need to get this away right at the start and people will soon understand why. 
Um, he's fascinated by you in some ways and by what you're called and what we call you on the coverage. <laughs> Hi, Huss. My real name is Mac, but everyone calls me Big Penguin because I just woke up one morning and I thought it would be a cool nickname because I did like penguins. <laughs> Who gave you your nickname, Mr Cricket? <laughs> Bit of background music here at Optus at the moment, but we'll push on. <laughs> Who gave you the famous moniker and how do you feel about it? Because we call you constantly on the yeah. coverage, Mr. Well, Cricket. Well, thanks for the question, first of all. Uh, <laughs> good question. Uh, yeah, oh, well, it actually started in England, as far as I was aware. Um, I was playing county cricket for Durham, and we were playing against uh, Lancashire at Old Trafford. Uh, and um, it was one of those cold, wet, miserable days. No one wanted to be there except for me. I was loving it. <laughs> I was batting and I was charging between the wickets and I was calling loud and I was diving in and talking to my mate down the other end and just, just didn't want to be anywhere else. And, and Freddie Flintoff was playing for um, Lancashire and Brad Hodge was the overseas player there and they're out in the field. And Flintoff turned to Hodgie and said, mate, this guy loves cricket more than anyone I know. He must be Mr Cricket. <laughs> and Hodgie had a good laugh at that and he brought it back to Australia. I think he told Andrew Simons and Simo thought it was pretty funny and so it unfortunately sort of stuck. Um, I don't hate it, I know, as much as people out there think I do, because you could be called a lot worse things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I just don't think I'm deserving of it because there's so many more greater players than me out there. There's a lot more people that know, know a lot more about the game than I do out there. I, I love the game very much and maybe that's where it sort of comes from. I think that's the point because I don't think I've met anyone that loves cricket. Maybe... <laughs> Like Ricky, Ricky loves cricket. Yeah, Warney loves cricket. Warney loves cricket. <laughs> I don't think I've met anyone that loves it. Oh, Mirrily, he loves, loves cricket more than he? anyone I know. He's an, <laughs> he's a freak of nature. When you man. were together in the IPL, yeah. did they have similar nicknames for you? <laughs> uh, I think it was a lot more like Mr and Mrs Cricket at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> but Mirrily did not stop talking cricket 24 hours a day and so whenever we'd have to fly anywhere for the games, yeah. they'd deliberately put us two next to each other because no one else could sit next to Mirrily and put up with his chat about cricket. <laughs> but I loved it. You know, I could talk to him all day and all night. He, he's brilliant. Great guy. Great character. Fantastic cricketer as well. Um, so I just, I love being in his presence and I still do to this day. I think it's a sensational nickname. <laughs> Where did it all start for you? You grew up here in West Australia, Hus? Yeah, I'm from Perth. Uh, grew up in the northern suburbs, a place called Mullaloo. Um, had plenty of backyard battles out there with my brother Dave. Um, You're the? I'm older by two yep. years. Um, my dad actually hated cricket when, when we were young boys. He, he was an athletics man, um, so he was always trying to get us to run, run, uh, you know, little athletics and things like that. But we just, I don't know, we must have seen it on TV and, and loved cricket. So we had uh, plenty of those backyard battles. I think if there was a spirit of cricket back in those days, we would have been banned for life because <laughs> there was cheating, there was bribery, there was punch-ups, <laughs> there was sledging, swearing, the whole bit. So, um, But in a way it might have... Um, it might have been where our competitive spirit was born. Describe the backyard set up to me because we all that love cricket <laughs> grew up and there was a lemon tree or a garbage bin or, you know, we heard Jasper Boomer here last summer is run up because he only had a, a short backyard. What yeah. was the hussy backyard? Well, we had a very long driveway, sort of came up one side and then it curled around and then towards the back of the house and so that was our pitch at the back of the house. So pretty short pitch. Um I was a right-hander to start with, actually. So it was, you know, a fence on the right-hand side, it would cover, uh, and then a fence at the back. So if the ball goes over the fence on the full, our rule was out. It's not six and out, you're just out. My dad would always say, you know, you've got to keep your bo- keep the ball on the ground, like Sir Donald Bradman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, yeah, so they keep the ball on the ground, automatic wiki. Um, 
things like we used to tape up the tennis balls to get a bit of swing and and, and stuff like that. But it was it was great fun. Uh, the, the long part it's embarrassing for me to say now. The long part of the driveway used to go down to the letterbox at the front of the house, and I used to just practice my top hand drives all the way down the driveway, get the mail, and then top hand drives all the way back <laughs> up the driveway. When well. you're walking down to get the mail. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had to. I got told I had to strengthen up the top hand. So uh, <laughs> it just makes me laugh thinking about the, the stuff we used to get up to in the backyard. The kids kids questions normally come at the end, but you bet. Uh, too straight off the top for you because my <laughs> daughter's question relates to exactly what we're talking about. So now, mate, you get uh, the pickle at uh, 7 a.m. this morning. Here we go. Hi, Mr. Cricket. Pickle <laughs> here. We love what you do on the lab. It's so fancy and technical. <laughs> Our favourite cricketers are Mitchell Stark, Paddy Cummins and Finchie. Who are your favourite cricketers when you were growing up? This is when you're in the backyard. Who were you and who great, was Great, great question, Pickle. Thank you for that. Um, well, I loved Alan Border. He, he was my hero. Uh, I also loved Dennis Lilly and Rodney Marsh, being West Australians. So, you know, that, they were, you know, huge idols of mine. We used to try and emulate them in the backyard. But AB was my number one. I just loved the way he went about his cricket. He was so uncompromising, so tough, never gave his wicket away. Uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> Um, I loved him that much that, yeah, as I said, I was a right-hander to start with, but I loved AB that I, when I was about eight years of age, turned around to bat left-hander just to be like AB. Because of AB? <laughs> exactly right, yeah. How good you could have been if you stayed right-handed? <laughs> well, there was a few times throughout my career when I was in a form slump <laughs> and I thought, mm, maybe I should change back here. But, uh, yeah, no, it was all because of AB. Um, yeah, I, I loved him. He was brilliant. Um, and I was lucky enough uh, to uh, play against him. And I remember the the game. It was just at the Wacker. So this is the first time you would have met him? Uh, yep. Right. First time I met him, uh, we were playing a Sheffield Shield game at the Wacker. So he'd finished his international career and he was trying to win a Sheffield Shield for Queensland. I was just starting my career for WA. I was opening the batting and AB was on the other side. My shoe actually blew out. Um, and uh, so I you know, said, excuse me, Alan, do you mind if I just change my shoes, you know? And the first words my idol ever said to me was, <laughs> hurry up, you little mongrel, you know, <laughs> bloody hurry up, you little mongrel. I was like, oh, yeah, no worries. So, yeah, that were my first uh, first words he ever spoke to me. But uh, he was also coach on an Australia A tour that we went on to Scotland and Ireland. So to get to know him more as a person, what an amazing guy as well. Um, and, and what I admire most about him, obviously what he did on the field, but but also his humility and um, how kind and gentle a guy he is. You hear, of, you know, that he was Captain Grumpy, but, you know, he, he is an amazing man. I've still got my Alan Border scrapbook of all things um, because he was my first sporting hero. I get a massive kick out of sitting next to him at Fox Cricket. Do you look back now and and those people you idolised, you will have played against some of them, now you'd work with them. Do you find that strange? Do you pinch yourself at all or not? Well, I think, say for AB... Don't you reckon he just comes across as just like any other guy, like just a down-to-earth, nice, humble man? He's like your grandpa. Yeah. He's um, like your grandpa. And that's what I admire so much about him. But He's, I don't look at him like that. I look at him as my first sporting <laughs> But hero. I feel as though he breaks down those yeah, barriers yeah, and, and it just makes you feel comfortable in his presence. Um, certainly some of the other guys you pinch yourself. I, I used to pinch myself that I was actually on the same field as him, someone like a Warney or, or a Glenn McGrath, Ricky Ponting. You know, the, These are some of the best players that have ever played the game of cricket and just to be out there in the middle and watching them go about their work... Um, it's just incredible. Great honour. Michael Edward Colleen Hussey. <laughs> yeah. Where does the Colleen come from? Uh, I think it's Irish. Um, through my father's side, that, that name was passed on. So uh, my father's name uh, was Edward Colleen. His father's name was Edward Colleen. So I was Michael Edward Colleen. 
Unfortunately, it didn't get passed on to my son. <laughs> was there any family pressure or not? No, not really, no. Okay. No, it was all good, but uh, I think my wife had the main say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hus, when can you remember when you played your first game of competitive cricket or is it too far back? No, of course. I, I remember it, it drives my wife nuts now when we drive past a, uh, an oval and I'll say, yeah, I played a game there in the under-12s. <laughs> no, I, I remember playing my first uh, competitive cricket was playing for Whitford's Junior Cricket Club. And, and I was dead keen to play and I was pestering my mum and dad to help me sign up. So when I was 10, they signed me up for a team. And um, the week before the season started, we had a practice game. And the rule at the um, club was if you can get a 50, score a 50 or take a five-wicket haul, then you get presented with a baggy blue cap, that, that the club cap. So that was my whole goal in life was just to get a baggy blue cap, you know. And um, we had this practice game the week before the first game and um, I got 50 somehow. I don't know how, but I managed to get 50 and I was so mad that they wouldn't give me the the cap because it wasn't in the regular season. It's only a pracky match. <laughs> but it was my test match, mate, I can tell you. Um, so, yeah, so that was my one of my first games. And then I remember my very first proper game um, was, uh, yeah, well, it was crazy. Got the little shorts on, the socks pulled up nice and high and uh, I just remember just being so intense, you know, like, as I said, like like a test match and, and uh, it was wonderful. I think my best friend at school got six for four. <laughs> It's oh, a good day. <laughs> pretty pretty good day at the office, uh, and and I managed to scrape to fifty one as well. So um, yeah, managed to get my blue cap presented to me the the next week. So I was pretty excited about that. Were you one of those kids? And I often ask this of the guests at this point. Were you one of those kids that dominated their junior sport or not? No, not at all. I, I was a very little kid. I was very small, very weak. Didn't have many shots at all. And um, so the first coach that I had. Uh, he, he he impressed on me. He said, look, you're not big. You're not going to be able to smash it and like some of the other kids can, but just work on a good solid defence and a good technique. And then as you get bigger and stronger and older and the bowlers start getting a bit better, then you'll be able to handle it. So that's what I did. I basically just practised hard on a, on a good solid basic technique. A lot of my scoring was sort of edges down to third man or little deflections off my hip, things like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly didn't dominate and, and I didn't, I always felt inferior to everyone else because I was so little. I couldn't, I couldn't hit the ball as hard as everyone else. I couldn't score as fast as everyone else. I couldn't bowl as fast as everyone else. So I, I think that probably inspired me to work a bit harder because I thought well, for me to be as good as everyone else because I'm so little, I need to work twice as hard as everyone else. And maybe that helped me down the track, but I certainly didn't dominate um, ever. <laughs> and was Dave the big hitting player that he became at that young age? Um I don't remember. He was quite a little kid as well, but he, he, I, I still believe he had a lot more natural ability than me. Yeah, he could come in as we got older and we was playing first grade together. He, he would come out and just belt them everywhere um, and play shots that I could only dream of playing. And how did you feel about that when it was your brother? Uh, no, he was fine because I, I just played my way and he might come in and smash a quick 85 or 90 or 100, you know, in no time, but... If I, if I could bat all day, that's what motivated me. Um, if I could get the same score but bat longer. And so, so that was my plan was just to hang in there and <laughs> nick and nudge and survive all day. Um, and that's the way I wanted to bat. I just wanted to be in the middle uh, all, all the time. And when you were going through your school years, your high school years, what were you going to be? Uh, well, my love was cricket and I desperately wanted to play ever since I was six. I think I desperately wanted to play test cricket for Australia. Um, obviously... Mum and dad were, well, yeah, that's great, go for it, but you need to have something else to fall back on, you know, um, or you need to have something else in your life as well. 
And so as I get to the, got to the end of my high school years, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? I, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than play cricket. Um, I knew I had to do something. And so I thought I'd become a teacher. <laughs> I wish I could say my motives were pure and, you know, to develop the next lawyers and doctors <laughs> and what have you. But my motivation was, well, good holidays over Christmas time. <laughs> So I could go and play cricket and you knock off at three o'clock when school finishes so I could go to cricket training. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> uh, but I did do the teaching degree. It took me about eight years to get through it um, while, while I was playing for WA and, and I'm glad I did it actually. It, it was good. It was good to have some balance in, in my life because um, I was pretty intense <laughs> about the cricket stuff at that stage. In what way? Well, be- because I felt inferior to a lot of the, my peers, I felt like I had to work twice as hard as them and, and so – and. I didn't, it wasn't just on my batting, it was on my fitness, on my strength, on the diet, on the mental side of the game. It was every single aspect of the game. So for me, there wasn't enough hours in the day. And, and so I just wanted to get better and better and as good as I possibly could um, at every facet of the game to give me a chance of playing my best cricket. I was, I was actually talking to AB about you the other day, knowing we were going to sit down and do this. Um, and I just read your book as well, um, <laughs> Under the Southern Cross, which I really enjoyed on the way over here on the plane, actually. Um, so I hope the, uh, you get three bucks in your bank account somewhere <laughs> along the way, Hus. And he was telling me a story and it was related um, in your book, I think it's in your forward, your book, about him talking to you and a young group of cricketers saying test cricket's about batting all day, that's what you need to base <laughs> your training around. Yeah. And you taking that literally. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, it's a, again, one of those cringe, cringeworthy stories for me to tell now. But, um, yeah, so Alan Border was our coach on the Australia A Tour to Scotland and Ireland. And um, it was the day before a game against Scotland and the batters we were just having a hit in the nets for, say, 10 or 15 minutes and then the bowlers were just rolling their arm over for five, ten minutes each, you know, staying fresh for the game the next day. AB, being your old school tough nut, he wasn't that happy with this. So he pulled everyone in and he just said, right, you guys, how, how do you bowlers, how do you expect to bowl 35 overs in a day in a test match or, or, or 35, 40 overs in an innings of a test, test match when you bowl for five or ten minutes in the nets? And you batsmen, how do you expect to bat all day, bat into the second day, make double hundreds if you only bat for five, ten minutes in the nets? And I remember thinking, yeah, he's right. So when I got back to Perth, <laughs> my poor batting coach, <laughs> we, we, my club team had a bye on a Saturday. Um, so I rang the batting coach and said, right, Let's go to the nets and we're going we're gonna to learn to bat all day. So we started at 11 o'clock. This is on the bowling machine, throwdowns, underarm, we did a lot of drills and things like that as well. We started at 11 o'clock, went through to 1 o'clock, had a lunch break. Then we started again at 1.40 through to 3.40. So you had the 40-minute lunch break? Yeah, yeah. Had a tea break, 20-minute tea break. And then we went through to stumps. And Good coach. <laughs> oh, Good coach. Ian Kevin, he is an absolute legend, you know. The amount of time and effort he put into me was unbelievable. Uh, and I felt for him by the end of the day, I think he was as exhausted as me. But it was a good exercise, you know, because you go through so many waves, I guess, when you're batting all day. You go through times when you're feeling a million dollars and you're batting beautifully. You go through times when you're struggling mentally. Mentally, um, you're not hitting the ball well and then you come back out of it again. And um, so it was a good lesson to, to learn about the different, I guess, uh, things you go through when batting all day. How do you find out you're going to first play for West Australia? Western Australia, yeah. I was uh, I was in the squad, uh, uh, the, the state squad for the uh, first time in 1994 and... Um, uh, I'd had a year uh, at the cricket academy, so I was I was feeling good about feeling good about my game. But the Western Australian team was really strong. Um, I think what worked in my favour was uh, Jeff Marsh had just retired, 
he was an open, opener for WA for a long time, successful. So they had a guy called Mark Lavender and Mike Valletta. And there was a tour match against Indi- uh, England and Mike Valletta injured his groin in that, in that match. And so he was, he was um, unlikely starter for the, the first shield game of the season against Tasmania uh, in Hobart. And so I was called into the squad and I, and I remember uh, – yeah, just getting the news, got a big box with all my uh, all my gear in, had to be at the airport the next morning. And I just remember getting in my car, I was trying to hold it all together in front of everyone, got into my car and I was just yelling and screaming in complete joy for about 20 minutes, I think, driving all the way home, just, you know, giving myself the huge high fives and cheering and <laughs> I couldn't believe that I, you know, I'd been picked for WA. I couldn't wait to get home to tell mum and dad. So when did you first get a game for WA? So, yeah, I went to Hobart. Mike Valletta was injured, so I played that one game. Um, I'd never fielded for so long in my entire life. <laughs> Ricky Ponding made 200 and something. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many they made. must have been over 500. And then I went out to bat. I got 16 in my first game. I was shattered when I got out because um, I was loving loving being out there. Uh, it was a drawn match. I think Tom Moody made 270-odd. Um, and I didn't play again for the rest of the season. Valletta came back in. And um, so, yeah, I had that whole season uh, just watching from the sidelines. But then the following year was when I, I, Valletta retired and I was able to come in and start. Back to Huss in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games on Thursday, February 20, arguably Australia's greatest ever golfer. For mine, Australia's greatest ever golfer. Seven-time major winner, Kari Webb. By that stage, I realised that I, I didn't like... I didn't like how golf made me feel and treat people around me. So that's what I meant. Um, when anyone gets upset, I get sorry. upset. No, don't be sorry. Um, this has happened to me a few times on the show. Um, so why does that make you emotional? Um, sorry. No, I'll hit pause. I'll hit pause. No, I'm, I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm good. Um, no, I think just because... Deep down, that's not the person that I am. Very much not the person you are. Yeah, so um, I sort of set, not that I probably succeeded all the time, but I set out not to be, not to be that person. I didn't want to play golf that way. That's Kari Webb coming up on the Howie Games on Thursday, February 20. All right, back to Huss. I think when, um, especially when I read your guys' books, whether it's Shane or, or Gillies or yours or Justin Lange, you when you're all working together, it dawns on me how long your relationships go back and the ups and downs you all had along the mm. way. Tell me when you would have first played against Victoria and Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Vicks were always hard to play. Well, in fact, all the states were very hard. You know, it was tough old school cricket. You you um, caught plenty out there and, and certainly from the Vicks, they, they didn't hold back. Um it, yeah, it was it was tough cricket. Warney, the first time I came across him, I think I was playing a, a one-day game at the Wacker and he was bowling into this uh, really strong breeze and so I thought, well, my plan is I'm going to skip down the pitch and I'm just going to chip it up, get it up in that breeze and it will just travel for miles. Anyway, I, I do remember seeing the ball go up out of his hand and thinking, yep, that's it. So I come down and this ball has just, I hear the revs on it, it's like... <laughs> It's coming down and then it's just dropped, spun back through the gate and I was out stumped and I just got told from the wicket keeper, yeah, bugger off, idiot, you know, uh, <laughs> you've got no chance against this guy. And and I remember sitting there after thinking, wow, that was the most unbelievable delivery I've ever faced. I've never faced anything like that before in my life. Um, so I knew that I still had a fair way to go to be, you know, um, you know, competing with the big boys. You're a, a lucky man. You've got a beautiful family. You've got four kids. Four kids, yeah. Um, you met your wife. 
At uni? At uni, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> In a uh, subject called personal health for teachers. Personal which is health quite, for quite funny. Yeah, uh, I was one of two. Uh, males in the in the class. Ooh, sounds awkward. And uh, yeah, the first time I laid eyes on her, she she had to take the class, um, uh, give a tutorial on uh, PMT, premenstrual tension, I think it was. Sounds <laughs> even more awkward now, hustler. Yeah, and um, I remember one of the other girls in the class saying, "Well, let's get a male's perspective uh, from this, you know." And they all looked straight at me. What do you do, you know, when um, when your partner's got PMT? And I was like, oh, uh, I didn't even have a girlfriend at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> I just and I said something terrible. I, I think I said something along the lines, "Oh, I just try and ignore them, or I just give them their space and just get out of the way." <laughs> it was a bit of a chuckle in the room, but um, we went down. I went down to this sort of student library afterwards, and I bumped into her, uh, and I said, "Oh, that was really interesting what you were talking about up there today." And she goes, "I said I didn't know any of that stuff." And she goes, "Oh, you're just one of those uneducated males, are you?" <laughs> and that was out of her character as well. So it was a bit bizarre. And I was like, "Yeah, I, I am," but um, I don't know. We we sort of hit it off uh, during that class. And did you ask for her number? No, I actually obtained her number illegally. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? Well, I had a mate who was working at the uni. Um, in a different department, and I and I asked him to tap into the database oh. of the uni to get her phone number. That's wrong. <laughs> so many levels. I know. I know. Well, I didn't. I, I was a very shy guy, and okay. I didn't have the heart to ask her for a phone number. But um, yeah, so I did ring her out of the blue and um, asked to take her out for dinner. We did go out for a nice dinner um, to an Italian restaurant, which I had this beautiful white linen shirt on, and I, I have my favourite meal is spaghetti marinara, and so the red sauce pretty much went all <laughs> over the shirt. So I'm not sure I made the best first impression. <laughs> Hus, in a way you had two careers. You had your state career and you had your Australian career. Mm. So how long did you play for? How many first-class seasons did you play for before you got picked for Australia? Uh, well, it would have been... I reckon 10 or 11, I reckon. 10 or 11. Yeah, plus about five county seasons in there as well. Um, yeah, it was a long, long journey. So tell me about the ups and downs of playing for Western Australia when you thought you'd get picked and you didn't, yep. when it wasn't going well for you and you were a mile from the test team. That's a long time. Yeah. Well, my first probably four or five seasons for WA, I performed well um, and I felt as though I was so close. I was... I had to be next in, but the, the Australian team were doing so well. I was an opening batsman for most of my first-class career and there was uh, Mark Taylor and Michael Slater opening the batting and they were playing beautifully, never deserved to be dropped. Uh, they didn't seem to get injured. And then um, Maddie Hayden joined Justin Langer and they were obviously so successful as well. So I was always next in line, next in line, and I couldn't couldn't quite get that opportunity. And so after about that first four or five seasons, I remember looking at the Australian team and thinking, what what how do I take my game to another level? How can I just make that extra little jump? And I looked at the Aussie team and I saw Matty Hayden, Ricky Ponting, Adam Gilchrist, all aggressive players, mm. score fast, uh, dominate the bowlers. Even uh, Justin Langer, who was more of a nick and nudger early in his career, turned himself into an aggressive opener as well. And I thought, right, that's, that's what the national selectors want. And my game was based around patience, discipline, working the ball, dropping and running, running hard between the wickets, batting all day, batting time. That was the way I played. And I thought, right, okay, I need to I need to dominate the bowlers more. That's what the selectors want. So I, I did try and become more aggressive, changed my game, tried to bat, as I said earlier, like Matty Hayden or Ricky Ponting. Had a detrimental effect to my game. I became so inconsistent, um, uh, 
put so much pressure on myself. I just wanted it so bad to play for Australia and, and I just was fighting it and, and I couldn't, couldn't make that extra jump. Ended up getting dropped from the WA team right at the end of one uh, the season for the last Shield game of the season. And I remember... So how, how many years into your career, career would that have been for WA? Uh, that would have been... So what would I have been? About 26, 27 oh, so you, years you, of age. You're sort of five, six, seven years in at this point. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was an established player, but... How did you find out you got dropped? <clears throat> uh, we, we just finished a game against New South Wales at the Wacker and they are making uh, three changes for the last, last Shield game. They wanted to give a couple of youngsters a go. And myself, Ryan Campbell, were two guys that got dropped. Um... And oh, I was absolutely devastated, like oh, like you wouldn't believe. It was like my world was ending. <laughs> Describe it to me. Uh, well, I remember going home and I was just sitting out the back uh, with my now wife Amy and just, you know, I was in tears. <laughs> and she was trying to console me. We actually, the hardest thing was we actually had a team dinner that night and I was saying, I don't know if I can go. You know, I don't think I could face these guys. It's the end of my world, end of my life. Um, and Amy said to me, no, we've got to, we've got to go. This, you've got to show good character in these tough times. And she was right. And so we did go along and it was hard, um, but we got through it. But the last Shield game got played and um, I remember just sitting back and thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to play for Australia. Let's just be honest. I can't even get picked for WA anymore. Um, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not enjoying, you know, how, how, how hard this is. So, you know, next season I'm just going to come in, I'm just going to go back to enjoying my game, enjoying playing for Western Australia, enjoying being with my Western Australian teammates. I want to go back to playing my way. If it's not good enough to play for Australia, then I don't care. I'm not even going to worry about playing for Australia anymore. And I'm just going to start taking some more pressure off myself and, and just enjoy the, enjoy the game. I knew I could still be proud of my career if I played for Western Australia for 10 years. So that's what I decided to do. Uh, and coming into the next season... It was amazing. My consistency returned almost immediately. Mm. I was enjoying my game a lot more. I was playing my way. I was not even thinking about playing for Australia. And sure enough, <laughs> that's when the opportunity comes, you know, to get picked for Australia. Before we get talking about playing for Australia, Huss, the reason I really was looking forward to this podcast is uh, this is only from what you tell me that I have this impression. I haven't met many successful athletes with a level of self-doubt <laughs> that you had playing cricket. And I don't say that unkindly at all. That That's more from talking to you about various yeah. stages when we were having a couple of beers or whatever it may be. Tell me about self-doubt and you. Yeah, well, I, I certainly suffered from it, but I, I felt as though I felt as though I, I needed it. <laughs> it. It might sound crazy, but if I... I, I never would allow myself to get complacent or to feel overconfident. Every, every day is a new day out there in the middle and you cannot afford to get too cocky out there because that one ball's got your name on it. So I, I would almost, yeah, um, doubt myself even more just, just to make sure I was, you know, fighting as hard as I could for that next ball to win that next particular delivery. Um, and probably as I said earlier, I was my own harshest critic if – I wanted my practice to be absolutely perfect. If one ball didn't quite come out of the middle or didn't go exactly where it was supposed to, I was angry with myself. Come on. To be the best I can possibly be, I've got to practice perfectly. Um, I had to make sure I've completed um, at a very high standard every single fitness session, um, training session, fielding session, um, weight session. Um, Everything had to be perfect. And so otherwise I was... I was, you know, getting complacent or I was cheating myself or I wasn't giving 100% effort. So, uh, yeah, 
that's why I think a lot of my teammates saw me as a bit too intense and, and too, um, I guess, yeah, a bit too crazy about it all. But but that's just, I guess that's just who the person I was. So how did you enjoy it? <laughs> we'll get to your successes, but how did you enjoy playing, especially at international level when, <clears throat> you know, early on in your career you were averaging 80. People were comparing you they were comparing you to Bradman with the numbers, like like what happened to Steve Smith in, in England. You were yeah. having tremendous success and had an amazing career. Could you enjoy it day to day? And I don't mean in the change rooms after a win and stuff. I mean sitting there before you're going out to bat or after you've just been dismissed. Um, well, well, what I can say is I absolutely loved it. Uh, I loved that hard training. I loved wanting to get better and better every day. I, I love training. Um I, I, I could train three or four times a day, you know, and, and good, hard, intense training as well. So I love that side of things. I love just trying to get a bit better every day or trying to perfect something. Um, I loved the uh, competition in the middle. I loved that. I wanted to beat that bowler. Uh, I loved, you know, the result of scoring 100 or winning a, a, a game for WA or for Australia or whoever you're playing for. I, I loved that part of it. I loved the camaraderie in the dressing room uh, after a game. I hated, <laughs> I hated that sick, nervous feeling, that self-doubt um, when before a game, if I'd got a low score, if I'd let the team down by dropping catches or or losing a game, I hated, I hated that so much, and and, and that's yeah, um, that that's what I didn't enjoy, but I think that drives you forward, you know, for the next time as well. It's a game that it, it keeps kicking you. I, I remember asking Shane Warne at the end of his career, this is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. I said, have you had more good days than bad days in your career? And he said, after thinking about it for a while, he, he said to me, he goes, I reckon I've had 51% good, 40, uh, 49% bad. And I was like, wow, this is one of the greatest players of all time. He's had basically half and half. So that gave me perspective as well and say, okay, we're going to have those bad days and that helps helps you get over the bad days um, quicker. But having said that, I was a bit of a sulker. <laughs> if we lost a bad game or I was performing poorly, gee, I used to beat myself up for a while. In what way? Just chastise myself and tell me tell myself I was useless and um, what are you what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I just just sit there and sulk for for a long time. Whereas I, other guys just seem to get over it much quicker or put it into perspective much quicker. But it's just something that I just wanted so bad. I, I, if I look back at my time again, I, I wish I could have been better at that aspect. Yeah. So how did you perform at such a high level for so long with so many negative thoughts in your head? Because the modern athlete <clears throat> these days, they're in theory meant to go out there completely different to what you're talking about. They're meant to go out there with a the Mike Hussey that got dropped and was going out there <laughs> to enjoy the game and it's sports psychologist and you, yeah. I know you know you love your AFL and the way Richmond have approached their premierships and the way Nathan Buckley, you enjoy the podcast, coaches. Mm. It's the opposite, yep. the absolute opposite of everything you're talking about. So how did you make that work? Well, I, I was very lucky uh, earlier in my career to do a lot of work on the mental side of the game. Uh, through Western Australian uh, cricket, we had a guy called Sandy Gordon who, who was our sports psychologist and uh, I gr- had a great relationship with him and he educated all of our young players coming through about mental skills, concentration, uh, goal setting, um, routines, visualisation, all, all kinds of things. And I, I loved it. And so, hmm. yes, I had all those thoughts and doubts and I, and I, I reckon... 100% of the athletes out there that you're talking about, they'll all have had these negative thoughts, these doubts, these clouded mind. But what I was able to learn 
was to develop a routine so that when that bowler lets go of that ball, I'm in that perfect frame of mind ready to play confidently, um, to play as best as I can, play as clear-minded as I possibly could. So I developed a, um, a four-step routine. Uh, it took me years to develop, uh, but uh, once, I, once I'd got it and once I'd figured out what worked for me, then the, I could stick to that blueprint for the rest of my career. And, and I knew it had worked for me in the past. So I knew even if I was going through a bit of a rough trot, a rough trot I could just stick to it and it would be fine. And, and so what I did was if, I, if I'd had a really good innings where I played beautifully, I went back and just on a bit of paper, I just anything that came into my mind, I'd just throw it on the bit of paper. How, you know, um, what did I do in the week leading up? How was I training? What sort of things was I training? How was I eating? What was I eating? How much was I sleeping? The night before the game, what did I do? Um, when I woke up the next morning, how was I feeling? Um, what time did I get to the ground? What did I do in the warm-up? What, what did I have for breakfast? When I walked out to the middle, what was I thinking? How was I feeling? Was I tense? Was I relaxed? When, when I was playing my innings, you know, what, sort of, what was I thinking? Was I not thinking? You know, a- anything I could think of, just threw it all down on this bit of paper, put it in the drawer. And so after another brilliant innings, might be a couple of months later, did exactly the same exercise. And over the course of a couple of years, you had, say, four or five brilliant innings where everything just felt in sync, where you're in the zone. Um, After about a couple of years, I I pulled out these bits of paper and started to see a bit of a trend of what I did in the week leading up to the game, what I did the night before, what I did in the morning of the game, how I felt and what I was thinking out in the middle. And so that helped me develop my routine of when I'm playing at my best, this is what it looks like, this is what it feels like. And so that became my blueprint. Um, And so that really helped me uh, when I was playing for Australia because there's so, there's so many external distractions. There's, there's so many uh, media, the commentators are picking apart your technique, the crowd's huge, there's sponsors, there's charities, that everyone's a piece of your time. But I just had this little blueprint that I'd figured out that works for me um, that I knew I could just stick to. And if, if I just stuck to it, then I was going to be okay. And if I go back in particular, so my four-step Routine in the middle for every single ball that I faced. So there are going to be cricketers all around the world listening to this, <laughs> and they've got their pen out and they've been waiting because well, that is a brilliant description of what you've just said. What are the four steps? Well, it, what everyone out there needs to understand, though, this is what worked for me. So, so their routine or their what works for them is going to take time for them to figure out. So, what works for me will not necessarily work for you, Howie. Um, there might be bits and pieces, but. At the end of the day, so, so my four-step routine was, first of all, my stance. So that, that was, as the bowler starts running in, I just go through a little checklist with my stance, make sure my feet are in the right place, shoulder, eyes are nice and level, weight slightly forward, hands are in, in, in nice and tight. So that, that's basically the building blocks. So everything starts from the stance. If your stance is out of kilter, then you're off to a bad start. So I just wanted everything to be in a good spot to start with. The second step was to relax because I was someone that tried so hard, put so much pressure on myself, wanted it so bad, and I, I can even feel my jaw clenching up here and my, my arm tightening here just, you know, saying it. So the next step as he's, as he's coming in through his run-up is just to relax. Relax your arms, relax your jaw, just relax. Deep breath. The third step and quite often the hardest step was, okay, all those doubts, all those negative thoughts, all the clouded mind stuff that's going on in your mind, now it's time for that to go. Clear it out. Clear it out. Clear out those negative thoughts and doubts. And then as the ball lets go of the ball, the last thing I'd say to myself, step four was, right, see that ball. Just see that ball out of the hands and then let your instincts take over from there. And so 
I would just every single day at practice, I'd just work on those four steps. It didn't matter what the um, what the pitches were like, didn't matter who was bowling, where we were around the world. It was just keep grooving that four step routine day in, day out, day in, day out, and and yeah, so that that's what really helped helped me um, throughout my yeah my certainly my Australian career. So when you batted for a long period of time, yeah. At the end of the day, were you more physically or mentally tired? Because that sounds mentally exhausting. <laughs> well, no, because you only once you play the ball, then you switch off completely. Um, so I was only com- concentrating for probably a matter of, I don't know, f- a few seconds per per ball, and then it was basically switching off in between balls. Listen to a bit of sledging that was going on, or listen to some something going on in the crowd. Have a look around. I don't know, just completely switch off. But then as soon as the ball hits the top of his mark, right, start the process again. Um, but in answering your question, uh, probably both because I, I put so much into every single ball, every single run. So I, I, if I batted all day, I was mentally and physically exhausted, yeah. And how we, you know, I spoke to Mark Wall on this podcast about um, he'd fall asleep or talk to Michael Clark and he'd say, oh, I'd try and stay relaxed. I was speaking to one of your former teammates who worked with us now at Fox Cricket and they said that you were – the most nervous player they'd seen when you're going out to bat or when you're sitting yeah. there waiting in the hot seat, so to speak. Yep, I'd go through waves of emotion. So, sometimes I, I would get really lethargic and feel like I was going to fall asleep, but then other times, yeah, I'd be dancing around the dressing room and I'd be getting the blood pumping, you know. My, my father used to say to me, nerves are good. You know, you can use them to your advantage. You know, you'll be sharp when you get out in the middle, bang, you know, you, you'll be ready to go. And and so I tried to look on the positive side of things there. So if there was a wicket fall and I was in, I used to just basically sprint out to the middle. I just just get out there and yeah, let's get would. in get into this, you know. Um but yeah, I was nervous, you know. Um and that that's probably it's probably the one of the problems of playing or any sport really is you you're, you're focusing on the result too much. You know, and and you want you want the win. You want to do well personally. And um, what if I don't? Oh, am I going to get dropped? And all those and that's all all the negative thoughts and doubts come into your mind because you're worried about the result. But the great thing about my four step routine, it was just focusing on a process. And so I knew if I just stuck to those four steps, my, I'm focusing on the process, and then the result will take care of itself. Do you use routines in the other parts of your life now that? you know, whether it's your, your television work or with your family or now that you're getting involved in coaching, do you, have you set up a similar structure around your life or no? Not really. I, I, I'm still learning, I guess, from the broadcasting side of things. So maybe that's something I will develop in time and, and something that works for me. I, I'm already picking out little bits and pieces of things um, that some days they work, maybe some days they don't. As far as life and family and coaching goes, no, not, not really. In, in fact, I'm trying to go the other way. Because as I said earlier, that worked for me on the field, but it's not necessarily going to work for my wife, my kids, the people that I coach. Um, yeah, it, it's, I guess from, from my life outside of cricket is more about sort of them rather than me. Like when, when I was sort of dealing with stuff out in the middle, it was basically an individual game. That, that's what worked for me. But I, I would hate to um, be working with some young players um, as a coach and saying you need to do this, this, this and this to be successful. No way. You know, I want to try and ask questions of them. Okay, how can we get the best out of you? What does your best game look like? What does it feel like? And help them to develop their own routine or no routine at all. That's the end of Mike Hussey, part A. Keep rolling into part B. And we can do it if we try, try, try. 
If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener.